Hi everybody and welcome. We're really glad you could join us today. Today's session will be looking at ways to integrate safe system design and operation with movement in place with a particular focus on people walking and people riding bicycles. My name's Elena Gardner and I'm the Communications Manager at Austroads. I'll be moderating today's session. If you run into any technical problems, please let me know in the questions section of your sidebar. You'll find that on the right-hand side of your screen. And just a quick tip, I'm assuming a lot of you are joining us from home today. If you lose sound or your picture freezes, it's most likely an issue with your connection. So if you close your browser and rejoin the session via your email registration, that will usually fix the issue. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the custodian of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads. We're the peak organisation of Australasian Transport and Traffic Agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Austroads uses a program management approach to deliver its work and each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. The program we're discussing, the project we're discussing today was delivered under the safety program, which is headed up by David Bobberman with the support of Leonie Pattinson. So a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, our presenter will speak for about 45 minutes today and then we'll have a Q&A session which will run for 15 minutes. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. The report this webinar is based on is also available through the handout section or it can be downloaded from our website. All of our publications are free to download and if you create an account you'll have access to our publications and you can sign up for weekly email alerts so you don't miss any new publications or upcoming webinars. So please do send us any questions you have for the Q&A. Simply type your question into the question box at any stage of the webinar. To help us answer your questions as best we can, please let us know the slide number your question relates to. This is really helpful because it provides context to your question. Um, if you download the PDF of the slides, um, you'll be able to refer to the slide number. And so just a reminder that you can do that in the handout section. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenter today, Dr. Bruce Corbin. Bruce has 20 years experience as a road safety practitioner. He was a research academic at Monash University Accident Research Centre between 1993 and 2013. His research interests included the safety of pedestrians, motorcyclists, roadsides and intersections through infrastructure design and speed management, as well as strategy development and target setting. After 20 years as an academic, Bruce established Corbin Consulting with the aim of taking road safety practice to ambitious new levels. Hi, Bruce. It's really great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Elena. Thanks for the introduction and uh, good afternoon to everybody. And uh, I guess good morning to those that are in, uh, in Western Australia. The, uh, I think it's great to um, have such a high level of interest in, in this topic. Um, 
And I think especially during these quite um, extraordinary times, it, uh, it really, to me it indicates I think that our Australia's people have actually chosen very well in terms of commissioning work that uh, covers covers the scope that uh, we'll be talking about today. The project started in uh, August uh, 2018 and uh, was published uh, last month, February last month. So uh, it ran for about um, about 18 months. And I must say there's, there's a lot that uh, has changed over that period. I think as we'll come to see that uh, movement place has progressed a lot during that period. And I think in terms of um, our interpretation and, and our translation from theory to practice of safe system, again, there's been very considerable progress in that time, particularly around the, the vulnerable road users. And I think there's also been quite a recognition of the need to, to support active travel um, for reasons of uh, sustainability, whether it's for transport, for cities, towns, etc. I think that's progressed a lot in the time as well. So um, I don't think, uh, and all of that I think leads to a sort of a changing risk profile as we move in that direction. So we need to understand that and we need to find ways to address it. I'm sure the, uh, the guidance that uh, comes from this piece of work will not be um, the final word, but I do hope it's a valuable contribution to, uh, to this um, need to understand better how we uh, accommodate our vulnerable road users better. So the agenda that uh, we've set for today's session, um, I think there's eight, eight parts to it. The first one is to talk about movement in place as a concept and particularly how it's evolving. Uh, secondly, I'd like to give some clarity to the, uh, the aims and the approach that were adopted for the project as well. Uh, the report concludes with a, a process for integration. I think I'd like uh, to also present that to you at the early part of the session so that, it, uh, that the content that follows will hopefully make a little bit more sense uh, that way. We'll talk about um, each of the, uh, the movement in place road and street families and what characterises them. Um, then about the safe system, perhaps what it's brought us, what, how it's changed our thinking and how we can have methods for aligning our measures with safe system principles. Um, I will then uh, look at some examples of some of the pedestrian and cyclist measures that we might, uh, might be able to use in, um, in different uh, movement and place settings. And then just to, to wrap up uh, before questions, uh, with a, just a review of the, uh, the overall process. So that's the agenda. Uh, the, to talk a little bit about the team that worked on this project and, and mainly from the point of view of thanking them, uh, project managers uh, Luke Wilby and uh, Melvin Everly from both from New South Wales have been exceptionally helpful, supportive. And uh, so thank you very much to both of those Gentlemen, um, technical expertise, uh, there's a lot of people assisted and contributed there, but in particular, uh, Brian Willey uh, from New South Wales, who's now I think working in the U well, uh, in Europe actually, um, and from Victoria, Alistair Cumming, Eric Chen and Rachel Ashton have been uh, particularly helpful. In terms of review of the project, um, three groups have, uh, have assisted there, the Austroids Working Group, which I'll come to in a moment, uh, the Austroads Road Safety Task Force and uh, the Austroads Board as well. So again, uh, expressing my uh, thanks to those groups for uh, supporting us through this um, this piece of work. Now the project team, um, I wanted to acknowledge them uh, individually and uh, 
for those who can uh, squint, you might be able to pick up some of the names there, but there were so many people who actually formed um, part of the, the uh, project team that uh, it's very hard to show them at the right scale. In fact, I've, uh, in order to even fit them on, I've had to edge New Zealand a little bit closer to Australia, which may not be a, such a good thing at these times, but um, thank you to all of those people. And uh, I know the vast majority were able to stay for the journey of the project, although I know others have to um, sometimes move into other roles. But thanks to the project team. So let's start now uh, with the first of the, uh, the items on the agenda, which is the evolving concept of, of movement in place. Originally, um, movement in place, I think, came from, uh, from work that was being done in the United Kingdom, uh, London in particular, to provide better guidance around transport planning for three main reasons. Uh, firstly, was to deliver a more integrated transport uh, and land use system. Uh, secondly, is to support a, a range of improved customer outcomes and for uh, individual user groups as well. And I think too, um, to better accommodate the attributes or the qualities of place. And uh, these are the sorts of uh, messages that I've been able to pick up from talking with people who have uh, genuine expertise in the area of movement and place. You see um, a diagram showing uh, two axes. Uh, the horizontal axis is for uh, attributes of place. Um, and you can see from uh, P1 across to P5, that indicates increasing uh, significance of the, of the attributes of place. And then on the vertical axis, we've got movement as well, going from M1 to M5, with increasing uh, significance of movement as you go vertically up the axis. Now, I know that's, um, in, that's in contradiction to what's being used in Victoria, but um, for this Australasian uh, version, we thought it was uh, worth uh, changing the axis on, on movement, reversing the axis so that we have a, a more intuitive system. So apologies to any others who are, uh, who are working with the, with the reverse of that. But that, um, that uh, five by five um, framework actually sets us up then for 25 individual um, cells within the, uh, within the framework. As you can see how they have been grouped by a movement in place uh, experts into six individual um, groupings, reflecting the, the value of place and reflecting the value of movement. Um, so that, that leads us uh, to, the, to the six road and street families. So three of them um, relate to cities, so city hubs, streets and places. Um, and also uh, we have activity streets and boulevards, movement corridors and connectors and local streets. It was a little bit difficult to choose uh, the, the actual framework because there's some excellent work going on around uh, both Australia and New Zealand, but in the end, we settled on, on this particular one and uh, um, our expectation is that those who are not um, fully aligned with this one will be able to adapt. So uh, I do hope that that uh, proves to be the case. Now to talk about the project aims and approach. Two things uh, in terms of the aims. Firstly, was to synthesize the evidence on the effectiveness of safe system treatments uh, for our vulnerable roaders, but, but particularly for our pedestrians and cyclists in uh, the different street environments that uh, are characterized within the movement in place framework. Secondly, um, and, and this is, I guess, what today's webinar is about, is to provide guidance to our Australasian jurisdictions and beyond where relevant in being able to transition to, to safe use of roads and streets 
by vulnerable road users. But again, our, our main focus uh, turns out to be on um, pedestrians and cyclists, particularly because of the emphasis given to um, promoting um, active uh, forms or active modes of travel. The approach, just as a bit of an overview, a bit of a summary here, uh, we endeavoured to draw where we could on any of the uh, evidence-based research. Uh, the guidance uh, was provided on how to apply safe system principles in this context of different movement and place settings for our most vulnerable. Um, we strongly acknowledge the, uh, in this work the, uh, the high vulnerability of, uh, of pedestrians and bicyclists and, and others in the, uh, the group, the people who are mobility impaired and also the micro mobility modes which are appearing increasingly on our streets. And uh, we endeavoured as well to try and focus on urban settings and, and placemaking as important elements in some settings at least uh, of, uh, of movement and place. So that's the, the basic approach we've taken. Now to, to give you an overview of a process for integrating um, safe system aligned measures for PEDS and cyclists into the into the movement and place framework, I want to take you to this, uh, this sort of step-by-step -step, um, process for integration. If, we, if our starting point is that we're working with, uh, whether we're a transport planner, a road engineer, a, um, an urban, uh, urban planner, et cetera, we have a, a project of some kind, which could be a new, a new street setting, or it could be uh, improving, enhancing an existing setting. First step um, is that you determine what is the movement in place family uh, within which your particular uh, project or your activity actually belongs. So uh, I don't think this step is a, is a black and white process. Um, you know, there's, there's um, a blurring, I think, uh, across the edges between the individual six families, but at least having some sense of where uh, your project most uh, suitably fits is, uh, is an important um, bit of context to, to get underway. Secondly, we look at what are the, um, the place factors, what are the sorts of factors that drive the values of place, uh, where we're actually, uh, where our project is situated, and that includes determining um, land use priorities in that setting as well. Then moving to the, the movement aspect of things, same sort of questions, uh, what are the things that drive the, the movement uh, value or the movement uh, um, definitions for the particular area and then to look at what are the transport modes that we have or wish to accommodate um, and what priority should we assign to them. Sometimes we may not be um, wanting to reinforce the existing priorities, we may have a desire or an aspiration to shift um, from the current situation to something more suited or something uh, generally better or a better match for the movement in place context. Next step is to identify and assess our, uh, our safe system requirements, our safe system measures, to try and find those that are the best match for the, uh, for the movement of place context that we're working with. And then to prioritise options, because there are a number of options uh, that will suit the same situation. Um, so some form of prioritisation is needed. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And then how do we uh, go about integrating these chosen treatments into the particular location and into the, uh, the surrounding network as well. So that's an overview of the, of the process that uh, developed out of this um, project to try and give us a systematic step-by-step -step, uh, guide as to, uh, to how to go through it. 
Now looking at uh, movement and place and uh, street families. So I'll describe each of these. Um, what, I'll, what I will do is I guess I'll read these out because uh, I think paraphrasing is, uh, is a risky thing with, with these sorts of descriptions. These have been again given to me uh, to represent each of the six movement and place families uh, coming from people who are working uh, in this field. So firstly for city hubs, successful city hubs are dense and vibrant places that are high, have a high demand for movement. And I add that that doesn't necessarily mean vehicle movement or private vehicle movement, but a high demand for movement. They're also places providing focal points for businesses and culture. City hubs should aim to reduce the impact of high traffic volumes while accommodating high pedestrian numbers, multimodal journeys, and access to public transport and essential uh, emergency services. So each of them, as I describe each of the, uh, the movement place families, you'll see an image. Uh, in this case, it's um, Swanson Street and Flinders Street in the city of Melbourne, alongside the, you know, the central uh, rail station, um, to represent something that uh, is close to the, uh, the city hub definition. And uh, each of the slides will also show in highlighted form where that category actually sits within the framework. So in the case of city hubs, uh, we're talking about uh, both a high requirement for movement and also a high place value. Moving to city streets, successful city streets should provide a world-class pedestrian friendly environment. They aim to support businesses, on-street activity and public life, while ensuring excellent connections with the wider transport network. Again, I think we see Liverpool Street from Hobart as a, as a representation here, and you can see um, in the framework that uh, um, the, the, the value or the importance of movement drops down a little bit, um, but still high significance for place. Activity streets and boulevards, uh, successful activity streets and boulevards provide access to shops and services by all modes. There is a high demand for movement as well as place with a need to balance different demands within the available road space. Activity streets and boulevards aim to ensure a high quality public realm with a strong focus on supporting businesses, traders and neighbourhood life. Again, as you can see in the, uh, the framework there, generally speaking, the activity streets and boulevards sit within the, uh, the, the pretty much the middle of the framework, more or less. Movement corridors and connectors. Uh, successful connectors should provide safe, reliable and efficient movement of people and goods between regions and strategic centres and mitigate the impact on adjacent communities. So again, a very high, in this case, a high uh, emphasis on movement and uh, particularly people and goods and, uh, and uh, probably a lesser value of place, generally speaking. Local streets, successful local streets should provide quiet, safe and desirable residential access, and I emphasise access, uh, for all ages and abilities that foster community spirit and local pride. They are part of the fabric of our neighbourhoods where we live our lives and facilitate local community access. So in this case, in the framework, we're moving more to the, uh, the bottom left-hand corner, lower relative terms on movement and more about access and low in relative terms on place. Although um, 
I have to say, if you happen to live in one of these uh, local streets, it is important, the place value is important to you. City places um, are roads and streets with high demand for pedestrian activities and lower levels of vehicle movement. City places are places communities value and for people and visitors to enjoy. So here we're moving in the framework more towards the bottom right hand area of the matrix uh, where, where place is valued more and movement uh, drops a little bit down the scale. Now, um, in terms of the process that I described a short time ago, there are some steps or some, some thoughts that need to, to uh, be considered when prioritising the attributes of place. I mentioned earlier what drives the values of place. Uh, that's part of the getting the understanding of, of where your project or your, your work sits in the, uh, in the framework. Um, it includes looking at things like the land use types. Uh, in, in their many forms, it's, uh, it's residential, uh, it's put where people go for, uh, for employment, uh, there's places for entertainment, uh, shopping, uh, cafes, uh, restaurant precincts and the like. We also often have recreational and community facilities that are important to, to those who live within range, um, open spaces, parkland, uh, urban spaces for people to gather are important as well. Special uh, event venues such as sporting stadia as well in some of the big cities, um, that's a, there are significant parts of the, uh, of the surroundings. And uh, I think very importantly, public transport services and major interchanges. So places where um, perhaps buses connect, uh, major bus services connect with major rail or light rail or trams, etc. Those kinds of things are really important to uh, have uh, front of mind and to, and to respond to. And all of that um, consideration of land use types naturally uh, leads us into some thoughts about road user types and what kinds of people are drawn to those land uses and how will we accommodate them. Uh, Livability uh, is an overriding issue that um, uh, couples together with the, with the values of place in a very close way. So understanding when livability is uh, really important. And, and those sort of considerations then take us into the movement priorities uh, by mode and particularly by the, uh, the active modes of travel. Then uh, we look at um, the issues for prioritising modes. And again, as we did with place, we think about what are the factors that drive the values of movement for any particular road or street. Again, understanding uh, more carefully what it is we're trying to achieve in terms of movement and not just vehicle movement, but we're seeing a shift in emphasis now uh, from the movement of people um, to the movement of people rather than just simply vehicles. So that's, I think, a really important distinction that uh, movement in place brings to our, uh, our thinking as well. Around the world, um, we're seeing growing support for active travel uh, for a host of reasons, um, including its, uh, its long-term sustainability. It contributes to sustainable cities and towns and also to, to sustainable transport systems. Uh, we all know it's healthy. Um, it's low on noise, low on emissions. Uh, it's, a, it's a critical part of public transport, so it supports our efforts to, uh, to um, shift people to uh, public transport modes where we can, where appropriate. It supports social equity. Uh, it's space efficient, of course. 
compared to the alternatives. And um, it's also imposing low risk to other road users as well. The, um, the image across on the right-hand side of this slide, uh, again drawn from the Victorian work, uh, classifies modes into, into nine different categories. So you can see that there's one that represents general traffic. Um, the next three are about public transport, so rail, tram, light rail, uh, and, and also buses. Uh, then we go to freight, and then uh, to activities such as tourism, um, which may take uh, much higher prominence when we're at the other side of the, the coronavirus, um, interchanges, and uh, and then our, our cycling and our walking modes in particular. So these are, the, these are the guidance, I think, that we're getting out of movement and place work to help us in prioritising the modes. Now we move uh, from the, the consideration of movement in place and, and its characteristics and its structure to now talk about safe system, uh, what, it's, what it's brought to our thinking and how we can get some confidence about whether we're getting alignment of our measures for our vulnerable road users with the, the principles that uh, define safe system. So what are the principles as, as applied to pedestrians and to cyclists? And perhaps before I go to that, I just want to um, emphasise that the SAFE system continues to be seen as global best practice. Um, some may know that uh, last month, February uh, last month, uh, we had a third global ministerial conference on road safety was held in Stockholm, where the importance of following uh, SAFE system principles was was reaffirmed, and uh, this came from an expert uh, uh, group on uh, on road safety. Um, the, the, many of the leading uh, experts in the road safety field uh, gathered together to form a number of recommendations, including continuing to uh, to work with safe system principles. And some of the things that I think safe system has brought to us since 2004, I think, was when we actually formally in, in Australia's adopted uh, safe system as our way of tackling road trauma. I think we now have built our belief that it is the right thing to do for to aim for zero or close to zero. Um, perhaps in the early days there were sort of doubts about whether that was feasible and and whether it was uh, the right thing to do. But I think we're we're now in a position where that that belief is much uh, clearer and stronger. We also now have an acceptance that um, humans operating in traffic are prone to be imperfect. They make errors, some in, unintentionally, some deliberately some for risk-taking, some are simply lapses in performance, but we do know humans are imperfect uh, in, the, in the wider life, including in the traffic system. We have an awareness, an increased um, awareness that the survivability for people who are involved in crashes, our common crash types, is really quite low, even when these crashes occur at legal speeds. So we are, in many cases, or have been, we are, operating outside the safe system envelope uh, in terms of energy exchange. We have now, I think, a, a much heightened understanding of um, the fundamental importance of kinetic energy. Uh, we try to keep the sources of energy separated. Where we can't, we have a challenge to be able to manage that energy so that when uh, road users come together, that we're able to dissipate that energy in a way that doesn't produce harm. Another, uh, I think, great benefit of safe system thinking has been the value of system-based design, where we don't, um, in isolation, talk about how we design the infrastructure. 
or how we design vehicles or how we set speed limits, all of these things, or how we actually shift people's behaviour and performance, all of these things need to be brought together into a single view. And um, I think safe system thinking has helped us to focus more on um, system-based design, but also on focusing on uh, systemic risk. We've had decades of working with programs such as black spot programs, which are, have, have led us to treat isolated locations, generally speaking, because we can find clusters, often randomly occurring clusters, and we can uh, we can actually treat them. But now, with um, probably 30, 40 or more years of success in that area, we are, we are now in a position to move more towards addressing systemic risk, particularly for our pedestrians and our cyclists and our other vulnerable road users. I think there's also now an acceptance by our professions that they have responsibilities to build safe infrastructure and to set safe speed limits. And today, uh, our state of knowledge is that we know a lot more about what is safe in both of those ways. So we're in a good, uh, a good position to move, uh, move forward. Now, back in, uh, not so long ago, in 2018, a report, um, some work conducted by Austroads towards safe system infrastructure set out um, the notion of aspirational operating speeds or safe system speeds. And uh, many of you will be familiar with these uh, four categories that are uh, bullet pointed here. Uh, the one I highlight is 30 kilometres per hour. Uh, it relates to our vulnerable road users uh, when in conflict with, uh, with passenger vehicles. So these are our aspirational operating speeds. And uh, this gives us important guidance in terms of how we assess um, measures that we might use to uh, address the vulnerability of our road users where they're mixing with, with vehicular traffic. Um, the, the image that you see there of the 30 kmh sign uh, comes from the, uh, again, from last month's uh, Global Ministerial Conference on Road Safety, where the academic expert group recommended that in, in urban settings where we have pedestrians and bicyclists mixing with uh, with traffic in a planned way and in a, a routine way that we, we ought to be assuring 30 kilometre per hour travel speeds, both through speed limits and through uh, infrastructure design and enforcement, uh, unless we can demonstrate that higher travel speeds are okay. So that's another uh, another of the changes that's really come along since, since the um, publication of this report. Now, how do we go about assessing safe system alignment of our, our measures that we might consider for improving pedestrian and cyclist safety? I've moved uh, on the basis of three primary criteria, which are consistent with what we have in the safe system uh, assessment framework, which is another piece of work carried out uh, a few years ago, not so long ago by, um, by Austroads, commissioned by Austroads. And the three criteria are, what will be the outcome? What's the risk of a severe injury in the event of a crash? We don't want that to exceed that aspirational operating speed. 30 kilometres per hour uh, has been set as the speed above which we don't want uh, crashes to occur and uh, below which we recognise severity will uh, be markedly reduced. Crash likelihood is the second of these criteria. Uh, what can we do for a given level of exposure to reduce the likelihood of crashes? And finally, exposure to crash risk. How might we change the numbers of vehicles the numbers of pedestrians, the number of cyclists, the number of other vulnerable road users who come into conflict uh, through some change in the way we manage the network or design the network. So using those three uh, criteria to help us assess safe system alignment, 
I've created the, uh, the box that you see, the little table that you see in the bottom right-hand corner of this slide. Injury severity, um, when something takes us well towards safe system alignment, three ticks. Uh, when we have uh, a good but not a full impact in terms of crash likelihood, in this case, two ticks and exposure to conflict. Sometimes we can end up with three ticks in the exposure to conflicts boxes, such as in this image that you see here, where it's a car-free street. But in other cases, we'll still, in practical terms, um, have have the uh, the need for vehicle movement, of course, in, in many settings. Now, this might be a bit uh, overwhelming to try and take in, so I'm not really asking you to um, to take in the detailed content of this slide, but it's an example of, of um, some summary tables that have been produced uh, and are presented within the report. Uh, this one is for intersections. In the first column, uh, we have a, a number of treatments that um, represent uh, improvements in safety for, for pedestrians uh, and onto cyclists. Uh, for example, signalised intersections with scramble phasing in a 30 kilometre per hour speed limit setting is one. Another is to limit the access to certain streets by the mode, modes of travel. Uh, another is to um, construct or include raised, signal, raised platforms in signalised intersections with ramps designed to elicit 30 kilometre per hour speeds. Another is simply safety platforms uh, on all approaches to intersections, also at, uh, with 30 kmh uh, design uh, ramps as well. And there's a host of others down there which I won't go through. But um, the, the value I hope of this table is that you can see in the next three columns, so exposure, likelihood and severity, you can see the mechanism of effect of each of these safe system treatments. Some will, mostly they don't, but some will impact on exposure. Some will change the likelihood of crashes occurring, and some will actually uh, change the, the severity of outcome to, to be a, at a stage where we're happy that um, we're still operating within the safe system envelope. So that's to guide the, the extent to which our measures align with safe system. The next six columns that take us across the far right-hand side are the, far, uh, the, the six movement in place families. Um, that we've talked about so far with indicative uh, ticks to show the circumstances in which some of these measures might actually be appropriate. Now, there will be no doubt people out there far cleverer than me, cleverer than me who can sharpen this up to, to maybe find new opportunities or maybe to uh, add in new measures, but it's guidance to, uh, to try and help us connect up um, movement in place, safe system treatments and our vulnerable, uh, our most vulnerable road users with the sorts of measures that we can uh, deliver. Now, some of the other considerations, there were supporting, people who commented on the report during its development were keen to know about supporting treatments for pedestrians and cyclists. In other words, measures that could actually deliver improvements to safety, but which were not necessarily aligned with safe system. So without going through them at all, but the report does include uh, lists of those sorts of measures. And it's interesting that in many cases, those supporting treatments could be regarded as aligned with safe system principles if they were uh, existing within a, a 30 kilometer per hour speed environment. Uh, there are also uh, questions and desire to talk about pedestrian fencing in the work. And um, as a general rule, I think it's fair to say that pedestrian fencing isn't a good way to, uh, to promote uh, and encourage convenient walking. Um, but I do think that there may be 
exceptional circumstances or, or um, some cases where you'd say short lengths of pedestrian fencing around high-risk locations in order to direct people to the, uh, the lower-risk place to cross are uh, likely justified. And I'll give an example where close to traffic signals but not actually at signals, we find uh, people have a practice of walking through huge traffic um, on a red light and, uh, and sometimes coming to grief after going through perhaps one stationary lane and then being uh, struck uh, while obscured from the approaching vehicles by drivers in the, the second or third lane. So in some cases, pedestrian fencing, I think, can play a role, but recognising um, we want to promote walking rather than to uh, constrain it. Uh, another topic of interest to, to people who comment, commented along the way was about tactical urbanism. You can see an example from a street in New York where temporary improvements are carried out in places where it, it appears that that space could actually be reassigned for use other than, uh, other than vehicular movement. So uh, these measures, these improvements are put in place, they're trialled for an appropriate uh, time period and where successful, um, then they gradually can be made more permanent. But by and large, they've been very successful in, uh, in places such as New York and I think also Auckland has been a, a leader in this area. Uh, other questions arose about enforcement. Enforcement certainly has a place in terms of uh, enforcing behaviour of, of pedestrians and cyclists with regulations that are critical, particularly around traffic lights and also with our, um, our drivers, our, uh, your drivers in terms of compliance with speed limits and in terms of compliance with signals as well and in other settings as well. Uh, but again, enforcement on its own won't be enough. Just a little reminder as I move into the next uh, next stage of my presentation, uh, if you do have questions, uh, please um, type them into the spot uh, shown in this, uh, this diagram. Okay, we move now to some of the examples of pedestrian and cyclist measures. Uh, city hubs, um, I know there's been some controversy about this notion of grade separation and uh, I endeavour to try and make it clear that in certain settings, such as this in Perth, where the central railway station connects with uh, a major shopping centre on the other side of the road, providing that sort of uh, high volume uh, connection uh, can not only be safer, uh, more convenient, and also provide shelter, et cetera, in, in bad weather, um, but it can actually, um, it, it can change uh, the whole connection between, um, between public transport and, uh, and other land uses. Now, I'd also like to say that that doesn't mean that we ignore the needs of the people who are on the street, which you can see in this photo, there are a number. We still need to find safe and, uh, and convenient forms for them so that they don't have to walk, you know, three or 400 metres down the road, cross, you know, climb stairs, cross, climb downstairs again and walk back to where they want it to be. These sorts of things, I think, in the right setting can have a very valuable place. But, uh, but on their own, they, uh, they, they need to be considered in the broader context. Now, here's an example again of grade separation in the city hub. This comes from the city of Stockholm, where uh, this is this is um, a central rail station, a big open space, a big plaza area for people to gather or to access, um, and also to be able to move from one side of that road that you see on the elevated um, or the elevated roadway that you see there to the other side and uh, connect up with shops as well. So again, I think in these sorts of settings we can provide good levels of service for our pedestrians, safe, convenient, and, uh, and uh, good shelter. 
Um, another example of this uh, great separation comes from Rotterdam. Um, you can see in the middle of the photograph there, uh, a street that's a uh, normal street level, it's wide, it's quite busy, it has public transport on it. And this shopping centre has been built on either side, but also connected underneath the roadway. And uh, you can access that by, by stairs, uh, by ramps for bicycles, by escalators, by lifts. So it's very well served in that way. And it's actually been built and designed um, to make it a very pleasant place to be as well. So uh, high quality shopping and, and, and offices and, uh, and so on can, um, can transform those areas. Moving out of city hubs, separated cycle facilities. Um, you can see in this particular case uh, from a city street, we're actually separating the bicyclists from the uh, from general traffic on the street. And what I should have pointed out, I'm afraid, on the earlier ones, which I won't go back to now, but in the top right-hand corner, you can see the table which reflects the impact that each of these measures can have on injury severity, crash likelihood, or exposure to conflict. In this particular case, we're not changing anything about injury severity. We're not changing anything about exposure. Uh, the same volumes of pedestrians and bicyclists will more or less remain, but we are improving crash likelihood. So that's um, to try and put that in context. We'll just back up one here. We're doing the same thing here. We're not changing injury severity. We're not changing exposure, but we are uh, changing the likelihood of crashes in a, a fundamental way. Now, if I move to act activity streets and boulevards, um, in particular, uh, an example, a good example, I think, is roundabouts with wombat crossings. Uh, you can see in this case, uh, we have a mobility impaired person in a mobility scooter who's just crossed the, uh, the elevated platform. The combination of the speed moderating effects of roundabouts plus the zebra crossings giving right away to pedestrians and, uh, and also the raised platforms ensuring speeds of not more than 30, but uh, hopefully a bit less. Um, help us towards a really uh, well-aligned safe system treatment. So we're addressing injury severity, we're addressing crash likelihood, and it's unlikely that we're changing exposure, but there may be some redirection of um, extraneous traffic uh, in some settings. Again, activity streets and boulevards. This uh, Stockholm example shows, again, a separated cycle facility, but in this case, we see the cyclist positioned on the, uh, the safe or protected by the parking. Uh, at least uh, where that exists. So um, bigger, greater separation and uh, in some places se physical separation by the, the parking. This affects um, crash likelihood uh, rather than injury severity or exposure. When we move to uh, movement corridors and connectors, uh, speed platforms um, can change intersections as well. In this case, we see one where the platforms have been designed for uh, 50 kilometre per hour travel, when we're actually looking at pedestrians and bicyclists, uh, we may need to, um, to take that to lower levels if we're going to provide a, a closer alignment with safe system. Uh, movement, movement corridors and connectors, we see this Dutch example where cyclists and pedestrians can use a grade separation to go under a major road and uh, all the usual um, qualifications go here about making sure that it uh, is designed well um, and that uh, personal security is not compromised as a, as a result and uh, steep uh, grades etc should be avoided. In this case uh, the impact is on crash likelihood. Movement corridors and connectors again, speed platforms at pedestrian signals, this particular one wasn't in the report uh, 
um, but it's come to attention since. This is a, a movement corridor in, uh, in Dubai where on a number of locations along the route, pedestrian signals have been provided with platforms which I think bring about speeds of around 30 kilometres per hour as well and also can be used to allow concurrent U-turns uh, to occur during the pedestrian phase, which, uh, which adds uh, other types of value. Injury severity is addressed, crash likelihood is improved, but exposure to conflict is, uh, is unlikely to change. Local streets, we don't use them in Australasia, but maybe there's a case for four-way or all-way stop signs. Uh, here we see uh, an example from, uh, from North America, uh, where bringing people down uh, to, to a pretty much a stop condition can uh, again change the risk profile quite dramatically. In local streets, raised intersections, uh, trying to um, uh, change again the risk profile in, in the neighbourhood streets here. And you can imagine that a cyclist coming out on the side street on the right there would be in a much better position if, uh, if the motorists are travelling at uh, 30 kilometres per hour rather than at the default 50. Again, this attempts to address injury severity, improves crash likelihood and may uh, reduce extraneous traffic. Now, just to sort of go to, my, I think, my final slide before we go to uh, questions and answers is just to really reiterate the process. I won't, um, I won't go at that through that process in any detail, but simply to say, moving through systematically in those steps, uh, I think will be a, a, a useful way to go. And uh, but experience with this will um, will help us to understand that better. Now, just to finally state, there are key challenges that are with us right now, um, and they are. How do we achieve safe, sustainable and healthy forms of transport? I, I'm hoping that some of this thinking will, will make a contribution to that. Um, physical separation or speed reduction seem to be the main means by which we're going to be able to look after our most vulnerable road users. Physical separation is good where it's affordable and where we can um, link it into the sort of surrounding areas and uh, for it to operate in a convenient uh, way that doesn't um, penalise or compromise people. But in a lot of cases, I think it'll be impractical to do that. And therefore, we're going to have to come to terms with the issue about how to deal with uh, reductions in speed uh, or combinations of, of uh, separation or, or speed. That will be a big challenge, but it's a very important one. Um, question is, will benefit cost ratio continue to service well? I'm not sure that it will service well in this kind of circumstance, once you start focusing on the benefits of reductions in any particular user group, you narrow right down very much the benefits that you could achieve on the, uh, the top line. And uh, if we continue to use those sorts of metrics, we might find it very hard to justify investment in these kinds of things. Um, second to last, uh, stakeholder engagement, uh, because of the importance of speed, will con continue to be uh, very important and growing uh, importance. And I think there's a very nice link um, of the stakeholder engagement into the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, and we need to think about how we can um, indicate the additional benefits that our work will deliver beyond just road safety, but to things that relate to livability, to population health, to, uh, to climate change and other areas. And then finally, um, not to overlook the importance that uh, placemaking is in, in many of these uh, women in place uh, families and how our choice of um, safe system measures can either reinforce the goals of placemaking 
or uh, or perhaps um, detract from them. So we want to uh, be again very mindful of the relationship between placemaking and our choice of safe system measures. So uh, that uh, that brings us to, to questions. That's great, Bruce. Thanks so much for that um, really great presentation. We have so many questions. Um, so everybody, I do apologise if we don't get to your questions at the moment. We've got about 40 questions on the board. Um, if we don't get to answer them in person today, we'll certainly answer them in writing and we'll distribute all of um, all of the Q&A questions and answers to everybody who's participated today. So the first question relates to slide 14. And the um, question is, I'm working in rural towns. Uh, the word city is used on this slide, but how well does the concept of city transfer to towns? Yeah, look, I think that's a, that's a really uh, challenging uh, question, I think, to, to answer. But I think, um, I think in, in, a, in a rural city or a rural town, and, and I, you would almost, uh, and I'd be guided by a movement place friends here, but be, be, be thinking in terms of town centres, so that the really, you know, the heart of the uh, of the town centre might be the equivalent of a city hub, and then you have sort of surrounding streets that uh, are adjacent to the city hub that, that that reduce a little bit in terms of their movement function, um, or sorry, adjacent to the, the town centre, and then to think about city places, and there may be uh, town places which actually uh, fit that kind of um, circumstance. So I think it's about scaling down to the uh, to the environment in which you're working uh, from the city down to the more of a town or, or a population centre level. Great, thanks Bruce. Um, also a question about the um, movement in place, um, which relates to the differences between city streets and activity streets. So these seem to be very similar by definition. Both provide access to shops and businesses and trades. What's the best way to distinguish them? So that's the difference between city streets and activity mm. streets. Yeah. Let me just uh, skip through a little bit. So uh, was it city streets, did you say? Yeah, Lynn? city streets and activity streets. Activity streets, yeah. Yeah, look, they are, they are similar. Um, I think what we're talking about with city streets is that we're, we're thinking about a city context. So it's a, in this case, in this photograph, we're talking about Hobart, but we can think of all the examples of like streets around the major, the major um, capital and uh, provincial cities around uh, Australasia. But I think um, for me, the activity streets and boulevards are more likely to be present in our suburban settings. So out of that sort of city heart or that sort of central area and more in the in the suburbs um, uh, where people live. So it could be the inner suburbs. I think I can think of many examples of activity streets and boulevards there, but also in uh, moving as you get further and further away, away from central areas. And uh, so I think the character of those change just according to the, uh, the context there. Okay, thanks. Got a couple of questions that relate to slide 24. And a few people have asked whether um, these sorts of um, this sort of categorisation does it just include 
um, motor vehicles or other uh, or are other um, modes also considered. So things like uh, veloways, which are um, high capacity cycleways, are they also considered in this sort of um, categorisation? Yeah, look, I, I think they should be. I think they should be. As I said at one stage early in the presentation, that the, um, the definition of high movement is not necessarily about um, numbers of vehicles uh, or numbers of trucks, but it's, uh, it's, it's about people movement, I think. And uh, when we come to look at um, a particular movement corridor or connector, I think we need to consider uh, the prioritisation of modes. And in some cases, it might actually be that we want to include um, high capacity uh, cycling, off-road cycling facilities along those routes, uh, because that's a that's a good connection in in the, uh, the cycle network. So I think we need to be open and and uh, broad about the way in which we interpret uh, interpret movement in uh, in these kinds of cases. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so on slide 29, ah, perhaps not that one, I think the one before that. Yeah, so there's no mention um, in terms of the modes of either ferries or air travel. Uh, are there, do you have any comments about that, Bruce? Yeah, look, um, that's true. I, I don't, uh, and I think this is because this is one of the the differences between the system um, in Victoria, uh, where ferry. This is a, this is a, a Victorian um, um, image, I think, here that uh, that shows the various settings. So, in in Victoria and in particularly in Melbourne, ferries don't play anything more than a, uh, a minor role in transport. However, if we trans transfer ourselves to Sydney or maybe even to to Brisbane, then ferries clearly play a, a major a major part in all of that. So, in a New South Wales context, context I'd expect to see you know, ferries amongst those uh, individual mode um, categories. Sorry, Elena, there was one other mode I think you mentioned. Oh, air. Oh, air as well. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, um, uh, but I suppose I'd be thinking about whether that belongs under the interchange area or aspect where you're thinking about um, routes that serve access to uh, international airports or, or lesser uh, lesser standard airports but um, interchange it's a, it's a form of uh, you know, public transport and a major one in many of the, the big cities of uh, Australasia so perhaps that would be where I'd see it sitting but it doesn't actually get specific mention. Okay thanks Bruce. Um, we've got a number of questions that relate to slide 31. And quite a few around the use of the word aspirational and what that means. Can you um, sort of clarify what, how the word aspirational is used in this context? Look, it's actually, um, as I said, it's it's, wor it's wording that's come out of the uh, towards safe system infrastructure work. Now, my so I wasn't involved in that, but it, my my interpretation is that. Um, at the moment, 
travel speeds in areas where we have vulnerable road users are invariably substantially higher than that. Um, usually in some places where we have high incidence of uh, walking, particularly um, you know, busy shopping areas, then we'll have 40 kilometres per hour in many places. A few have gone with 30, but in very isolated places. So generally speaking, our urban default is 50, and then our arterial or higher order roads will be 60 and above in our urban settings. So I guess there's a, what this is saying to me is that there's a, a substantial gap in speed limit uh, between where we are today and where we would aspirationally want to be in order that we can deliver safe system uh, risk levels. So for me, it's, it's the aspiration. We need to find ways to get towards 30 if we're actually going to eliminate trauma for our vulnerable road users. But uh, of course, as I was saying in my closing slide, that's one of our big challenges is how do we manage speeds um, from where they are today down to, uh, to lower levels and, and will, for example, the sustainability or sustainable development goals help us in uh, highlighting additional benefits that we get from slower travel. Great. Um, and a question that relates to um, uh, our current um, situation where we're trying to tackle coronavirus. And the question is, could safe system speed limits be fast-tracked to minimise the burdens on the healthcare system at this time? Uh, look, I think that's, a, that's an outstanding uh, piece of creative thinking. You know, uh, if I'm interpreting that correctly, I'm thinking that if, if we can reduce the amount of trauma that's happening around Australia and New Zealand at the moment during these extremely difficult times, fewer people coming into hospitals with severe trauma, et cetera, uh, that would then take away the, a lot of the load and allow the existing resources to, uh, to be used in that way. Um, I think there's some, some real merit in that. And uh, there's so many, there's so many uh, very strong steps that have been taking, taken in other parts of our lives that um, this, this is not out of step with that kind of thinking. And uh, I would be highly, you know, very confident that lower speed limits could um, reduce trauma quite dramatically. We talk about that in many other settings, be it rural settings or be it in these more dense urban settings where we have um, our vulnerable road users coming into conflict. Thanks, Bruce. Um, got a, quite a few questions relating to slide 33. And yeah, so why does grade separation at an intersection not reduce exposure for vulnerable road users? Yeah, look, that's, um, I think it's, a, it's about the way we interpret the language a little bit there. Um, and I've had that same sort of comment uh, come to me from other people as well. So I understand the, 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 the uncertainty there, but what, what, what um, the way I've interpreted that, if you go from a grade level intersection to an, a grade separated intersection, you would expect to still see the same numbers of vehicle movements passing through. Maybe you even see more as a result of grade separation, but basically you're not changing any of the, uh, the volumes that pass through that point on the network. However, what you are doing is by separating the, uh, the two roads vertically, you're actually taking away the chance of having a crash. It's no longer at grade and therefore crashes are not possible. And um, you're not changing the severity either. 
because uh, speeds are still the same as they previously were. So that's that's my attempt to interpret in a consistent way the differences between exposure, likelihood and severity, but it may not fit well with everybody's uh, way of thinking. Yeah, there are a lot of questions relating to exposure and grade separation. Um, and They include um, questions in in relation to the examples that you've provided. So we will answer all of those um, in writing. But I think, I think we are actually gonna to have to uh, wrap up now. Uh, it's two o'clock on the dot. Um, so thanks everybody for your terrific questions. And thanks Bruce for a really great um, uh, presentation today. I'm just going to bring up my slide, maybe not. Okay. Can I do that for you, Alan? Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm going to go. <laughs> Sorry, just having. What what number do we know? If you could go um, right. Actually, I've got it now, so it's all right. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, everybody. Um, yeah. Just before we close today, I just wanted to let you know of some upcoming um, webinars. So we've got a list up there on the on the um, slide. But if you've got an interest in road safety, you might be particularly interested in the Australian Drink Driving Policy and Regulatory Framework uh, webinar, which is on the 9th of April, and also on the education and training of drivers of assisted and automated vehicles, which is on the 13th of May. Um, we've also got two webinars planned for late May and early June, which will focus on pedestrian planning and pedestrian survey and audit methods. Um, they're going to be very practical webinars and those details aren't yet on our website but I just wanted to give you the heads up that they are coming and we should have them on the website next week. So thank you everybody for your um, participation today. You gave us lots of great questions. Thanks so much Bruce for that presentation. It was really interesting. And um, just as we close out today's session, a questionnaire is going to pop up on your screen. If you could just take a few minutes to give us some feedback, we'd really appreciate that. We do read everything that you send us and we've been using your feedback to develop our future sessions and shape uh, the delivery of our, our webinars for the next year. So thanks everybody for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>